Hi, everybody. My name is Carl Darden, and I'd like to welcome and thank all of you for joining us today here on Navy Sports Central. I am your host, and this is the official podcast of the Navy Sports Nation, where we take a deeper dive into Navy sports. In this episode, we'll get into some of the reasons for the football team's rough start to the year, as well as what the future looks like following their loss to Air Force. And like always, we'll take a look and see what's going on with the fall sports, get your thoughts on our question of the day, and check in with the two athletes we're featuring in our Midwatch segment. We've got a lot to cover, and we'll get into it after this short break, so don't go anywhere. Okay, we are back. Welcome, everyone. And whether you are a regular or first-time listener, thanks for making us part of your day. The uh, fall sports season is in full swing, so we're going to jump right into it and get you caught up on what's been going on. And we're going to go ahead and start with the men's soccer team. Uh, They finished their non-conference schedule with a 2-0 win over Longwood University. It was their third straight shutout, actually, uh, with the other two coming against George Washington and LaSalle. And it looks like Coach Tim O'Donoghue really has his guys dialed in defensively. Uh, the mids have only allowed three goals on their way to a 5-0 and one start. Besides goalkeeper Tyler Fawning, uh, we have uh, last year's Patriot League co-defensive player of the year, Matt Nasita, having a really big impact. And I'll tell you, the first thing that got my attention when I saw a photo of Matt was his height. I mean, I was completely blown away. Um, I don't watch a ton of soccer, but I do recall that the tallest American player I ever saw was uh, Alexi Lalas back in the 1990s, and he was 6'3". Uh, Nasita is five inches taller at 6'8", and um, Navy actually has two other players, including Fawning, that are 6'3 or taller. So, yeah, I could see where it'd be pretty intimidating for an opposing player who's trying to score, finding himself squaring off against a 6'8 defender who's got every intention of stopping him. Offensively, the team is led by sophomore Sidney Paris with uh, six points, and David Jackson is right behind him with five. Paris actually figured in all the scoring against Longwood on Tuesday with a goal and an assist. On Saturday, the mids jumped right into their conference schedule against Boston University, and it sounds like Coach O'Donoghue is pretty happy with how they've been progressing as they compete for their first league championship since um, 2013. So that's what's going on with the men. Now let's uh, go ahead and check in with the women's soccer team. Um, They're currently 4-3-1 and and will also begin league play this weekend at Bucknell. Uh, Following that big win over Maryland last month, the Mids took on Ohio State that following week and dropped a really hard-fought game uh, 2-1. But these are the kinds of games that do a great job preparing the team for league competition. Uh, The Mids are the two-time defending champs, and I think that Coach Gabera is making sure that they maintain a sharp edge by playing these challenging non-conference games uh, before they kick things off in the Patriot League. On offense, the team is led by Caitlin Duran. Uh, She's got three goals and a total of six points. Um, Alexa Riddle has two goals, two assists, and that's also good for six points. And finally, Chloe Dawson leads the team in assists overall with three. Defensively, goalkeeper Maddie Gallagher has been pretty steady with barely a one goal against average per game. Uh, and she's got one shutout to her credit this year against uh, Towson. Now let's go ahead and move over to cross country and we'll start with the women's team. Uh, they came out strong, winning their first two meets in the Salisbury Invitational over Labor Day weekend. The mids placed five runners in the top 10, including first and second place. The winner was junior Emily Etrich, and she covered the 6K course in 22 minutes, 29 seconds. Finishing behind her was Caroline Harding, uh, who is a sophomore, and she came in with a time of uh, 22.39. At the Navy Twilight meet uh, last week, the team placed eight runners in the top 10. Leading the way was um, junior Elizabeth Sullivan from Newport, Rhode Island. She cruised to a 30-second win on the mids' home course with a time of 22:24. 24 
And uh, by the way, it was Loyola that finished a distant second behind the mids in that uh, in that meet. Next up for the women is the Virginia Invitational on the 17th, uh, which, of course, is uh, tomorrow. The uh, men's cross-country team also finished first in the Salisbury and Navy Twilight Invitationals. Uh, the cool thing here is that in the Salisbury meet, they only entered freshmen, and uh, it was a total of 15 of them that competed, and uh, five of them finished in the top 10, which helped them earn that win over second-place Rowan University. The mid's best finisher was Murphy Smith, who placed third overall in a field of 81 runners. His time of the 8K course was uh, 25 minutes, 15 seconds. Uh, his other teammates finishing in the top 10 were Andrew Cabral, Christian Landis, Ryan O'Day, and Luke Nestor. At the Twilight Invitational, the team was just dominant. Uh, they swept the first 10 positions to finish with a perfect team score of 15. Senior Miguel Mathias came in first with a time of 23.59, and Garrison Clark and Grant Van Valkenburg were right behind him in second and third place. All right, the last sport we'll hit is volleyball. Uh, the team's non-conference schedule is uh, usually made up of tournaments. Uh, they hosted West Virginia and Michigan over the Labor Day weekend at the Kristen Dickman Invitational. Unfortunately, they couldn't come away with a win. Uh, the Wolverines are a tough team. They were ranked 23rd in the country, but that really didn't seem to bother the mids early on um, as they split the first two sets. After that, though, Michigan's power game really got established, and that really helped them uh, in the next two sets, and they won those not really easy, but... It was by a decent margin, especially in the fourth set, and they, they closed out the match uh, three sets to one. Right now, the team is four and five going into league play, but, but that can be deceiving. Uh, Coach Paco Labrador uses the non-conference schedule to play really tough opponents and experiment with his rotations in order to get ready for the Patriot League competition. So I don't know that I'd get too hung up on the mid's record right now. Uh, that said, Coach Labrador said he's looking forward to a productive week of practice so they can iron out a few things uh, prior to their match against Loyola this Sunday. Offensively, outside hitter Jamie Llewellyn continues to lead the team in kills with 79 and service aces with 16. And on the defensive side, sophomore Maggie Bodman is the mid's top blocker with uh, 25. Okay, that's going to do it for our fall sports update. Um, I did want to let you know that I'm going to be doing a feature on the Navy water polo team in, the, in an upcoming uh, blog post. Uh, if you're like me, that sport may pop up on your radar during an Olympic year, and that's about it. But the mids are worth more than just a casual mention. Uh, they were ranked 19th in the country at the beginning of the year. So I'll be bringing them up a little bit more frequently in the future, starting with the story I'm planning for the blog. All right, I tell you what, let's go ahead and take a short break. Uh, when we come back, we will be uh, getting into our uh, deep dive segment. All right, now it's time for our deep dive segment. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, we're going to get into some of the reasons why the football team has gotten off to this 0-2 start. Uh, there's been a lot of really good and thoughtful engagement on our Facebook group page, which has been awesome. So let's just get right into it. First, I'm going to explain what goes into how I determine my expectations for the team each year. Uh, then we'll break down how those factors have impacted and will impact amidst the rest of the season. And finally, I'll give you my take on how things look for the program over the next few years in light of all the conference shuffling that will be taking place as soon as Houston, UCF, and Cincinnati leave for the Big 12. So here we go. Um, now, the first thing I want all of you to understand is the primary way that I evaluate the success of the program. And I do that by looking at how it compares to the other two service academies, um, not just head-to-head, -head, but also overall. 
there are some differences in terms of how the programs do business, but it's as close to an apples to apples comparison as, um, as you can get. I also know that this is a what have you done for me lately kind of environment, but uh, I think it's a little bit dangerous to have too short a time frame when it comes to determining success. Sometimes things change quickly and they affect the service academies in ways that don't really bother other schools. In one specific way, it's impacted Navy's program more than the other two, and I'll get to that in a minute. Now, when it comes to the players, I start looking at the depth chart going into spring practice. And as you might guess, I'm checking out the quarterback situation first. You know, figuring out stuff like how much playing time did he get last year? Did he make good decisions with the football if he did play? Does he have big-time playmaking ability? And also, can he throw the ball consistently? Then I look at the experience level of the offensive line and who the team has at fullback, slot back, and wide receiver. And the same thing goes for the defense. After I've got a pretty good idea of how the team looks with respect to talent, then I start looking at the strength of schedule. And this is really important. It'll probably surprise a few of you, too. Um, if you go back over the last 11 years, including the first couple of games of this season, uh, Navy has had the toughest schedule compared to Army and Air Force without doubt. Now, the more interesting thing is they also have the best record. And uh, let me show you what I'm talking about. Since the uh, 2011 season and going right up to Saturday's games, the mids record is 74 and 55 compared to 69 and 54 for Air Force, while Army is 59 and 67 over that same period. So while the mids have had a couple of forgettable years recently, they are going up against some tougher competition on a yearly basis. And while it's certainly not meant to be an excuse, it is a factor. Besides, you know, if the bowl selection committee can take strength of schedule into account when determining playoff teams every year, I see no reason why I can't use it to figure out how Navy stacks up against their two biggest rivals. Now let's take a look at one big change in college football that's really put all three service academies at a disadvantage, and it's also impacted Navy the most. And I'm talking about the uh, college transfer portal. Since it went into effect in 2017, it's completely changed the college football landscape. And um, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that the transfer portal will in no way ever benefit the service academies. You're not going to see four and five star players leaving their schools to come play for Army, Air Force or Navy. Not ever. Uh, on the other hand, since 2019, the mids have lost 20 players to the transfer portal compared to 15 for Air Force and only five for the Black Knights. And while I can't speak for the impact that players uh, were projected to have at the other two academies, uh, Navy lost some real studs like um, linebacker Tama Tuatelli. That just happened within the last few weeks. Uh, everybody remembers Jacob Springer from the 2019 season. He, he's gone. He's playing at Mississippi State now. Uh, Jamel Carruthers is at Western Kentucky. And uh, Devin Matthews also left. There are also some potential impact players like, uh, you know, quarterback Perry Olson. He was a decent option quarterback that if he would have just stuck it out, who knows what kind of a future he would have had. And also defensive back Tony Brown and fullback Malcolm Terry. Brown left the uh, program uh, prior to the beginning of last year, and Terry entered the uh, transfer portal just um, a couple of weeks ago. So there's nothing the program can do about that. Um, they just need to keep recruiting and developing players who are going to be the best fit no matter what. And if those players choose to enter the transfer portal later on down the road, you know, more power to them. I guess, you know, that's certainly their right. At the uh, end of the day, probably better to have a solid year or two of productivity than none at all. But uh, it's still pretty frustrating, though. So. Those are the three factors that help me to determine what a realistic set of expectations are for each season. You got quarterback talent and experience of the returning players, strength of schedule, and the impact of the transfer portal on team depth overall. After taking all of that into account, I think a 6-6 six and six record was a reasonable expectation at the beginning of the season. 
But I was hoping for a one-on-one start. It's tough for me to identify six more wins out of the remaining 10 games unless the mids can get a lot more effective throwing the ball to take the pressure off the running game. So I guess we'll see what happens. Okay, now I'd like to get into a little bit more about what's been going on these first two games. Um, First of all, the defense bounced back impressively against the Air Force, as I knew they would. Uh, So I think they'll continue to be a strength of the team. And I got to tell you that this is really a true credit to Coach Newberry and his staff because I can't even remember the last time I you know, said that about a Navy team where the defense was actually the strength. I think they did a really good job bottling up the Falcons' offense for most of the game. But uh, you can only be on the field so long. And after a while, you could see they were getting a little bit tired. And uh, it's just a big ask when you put the other team in such good field position time after time and expect your defense to bail you out. So that's definitely got to change if the mids are going to have any kind of success moving forward. Now let's break down the offense a little bit more. Um, There's no denying that the triple option is a fairly complex system. There's pre-snap reads to take into account, changing the play at the line of scrimmage if the defense switches up, making sure the mesh between the quarterback and the fullback is consistent, making an accurate and timely pitch to the slot back when that read is the correct one to make, and taking full advantage of any opportunities to throw the ball downfield. Um, yeah, that's a lot to take in. And that's why I'm not all that surprised that Navy's three quarterbacks are still progressing. If we're being fair, all of them are probably further along than when Malcolm Perry was a sophomore. In fact, I did a little bit more digging into all the Navy quarterbacks uh, during the uh, triple option era. And, uh, and here's what I found out. The ones who uh, did better statistically were the senior quarterbacks. Now, uh, there were three exceptions, uh, starting off with uh, Kaipo Noah, Kayeku, and Hada. He was very, very productive early on in his career because he came from a triple option system in high school, so it wasn't as big a transition for him. But that kid was a natural, and uh, if he hadn't gotten hurt his senior year, there's no telling what kind of numbers he could have rung up uh, overall for those last three years that he was quarterback for Navy. The uh, second exception was uh, Ricky Dobbs. Uh, He was forced into the starting role as a sophomore and and showed a knack for running the offense. He didn't have the same instincts as Kayeku and Hada did, uh, in fact, he would drive Coach Jasper and Coach Niamatololo a little crazy with his missed reads. But uh, Dobbs was a powerful enough runner to make something out of nothing, and he could throw the ball exceptionally well, so that was enough to bail him out whenever he made a mistake. And, of course, the third exception was uh, Keenan Reynolds. You know, that guy had the system figured out his first year because he was some kind of triple option savant. Plus, he worked his tail off, too, so I, I don't want to minimize that. In any case, Reynolds is probably the best option quarterback to ever play college football, And looking at the way the game is played now, his record of 88 career rushing touchdowns by a quarterback could be around for a long, long time. Take those three guys out of the equation, and you got guys like uh, Craig Candido. Now, he did play, he was the starter for his junior and senior year, but his senior year was way, way better. And then right after him, uh, Aaron Polanco came in. He he basically had a one-year gig as as the starting quarterback. Lamar Owens, same sort of thing. He was a one-year starter. Uh, Brian Hampton was, I think, getting into the mix as a junior, but uh, his senior year was ended prematurely because of injury. And that's when uh, Kaipo Noah took over. And then, of course, you had Ricky Dobbs stepping in for two strong years. And again, his senior year was his best. After that, we had uh, Chris Proctor, who did a really good job of running the option, but uh, he was a little bit of a hothead. And unfortunately, it was that that cost uh, Navy the game against Air Force back in 2011. And probably there was two other games I can think of that you know, Proctor may or may not have been a factor, but certainly the games were really, really close and the mids just couldn't close the deal. So they were probably about three plays away from a seven and five season, but instead they finished a five and seven. In any case, after Proctor, of course, you had uh, Keenan Reynolds step in. 
followed by uh, Will Worth after Tago Smith got hurt. And in his only season as a starter, as a senior, uh, he just had an awesome, awesome year. I think he ended up with 23 rushing touchdowns. And of course, he had that big win over Notre Dame, which uh, that's, a, that's a claim not even Keenan Reynolds can make. When uh, Will Worth graduated, we had Zach Aby take over. And he came in actually as a junior and played pretty well. Uh, the dude was just a powerful runner. And unfortunately, he just got beat up pretty hard. And towards the end of that season, it was really a struggle because teams were just keying on him. They knew he didn't have the quickness to get out to the edge. And unfortunately, his shoulder and his, uh, I, I think it's primarily his shoulder, was really, you know, giving him some problems. So uh, to go along with that, that's when the team started really looking towards uh, Malcolm Perry as a potential uh, future quarterback. But uh, Perry just wasn't quite ready yet. And we know all the struggles he had during his sophomore and junior years. But uh, that senior year was just something that I don't think any Navy fan will ever forget. So now we're up to last year and the uh, mids were really in a tough spot. Uh, Dalen Morris took the mids to their only three wins as a senior. And uh, the one thing I'll say about him is he, he didn't turn the ball over. As I recall, the only one, the only interception he had was one that bounced right off of uh, Jamel Carruthers' hands that he probably should have caught. But other than that, Dalen Morris did a really good job of taking care of the ball and not, not, not putting it on the ground. But the one thing was he was never as comfortable as he needed to be in that triple option system. And I think things could have been different if they would have had spring practice to get ready that year. Um, that could have made a big difference in some of the closer games. Uh, and I don't know that they were all that far away from being a, a 6-4 and four team as opposed to a 3-7 and seven team. Now, when I say that, I'm talking about basically those last three games of the season against, uh, I believe it was Memphis, Tulsa, and Army. All those, the defense just played out of their minds, but the offense just could not get anything going. So um, I guess what I'm trying to say here is when you have um, two quarterbacks who are sophomores and then you got another junior in the mix, there's still a little bit to learn. And I do think that these guys get the sense of urgency. Uh, when I look back at that first game against Marshall, I thought Lavatai moved the ball pretty well. Uh, between the 20s, certainly. It was just uh, you know tough going there uh, in the red zone. But if he gets back in the lineup after he's healthy, I think all he needs to see is a few successful pass completions to give him more confidence. And, and I think he'll be fine. Uh, Masai Maynard has also shown some improvement. So uh, I, I'm looking forward to seeing how he develops over time. Now, I do think our line has improved a lot since last season. But based on what I saw on Saturday, he needs to be a little bit more patient with his reads. Um, he's got the talent to move around in the pocket and give himself time to throw. But his instincts are to pull the ball down and run. Certainly not a bad choice if you're one-on-one -on -one with somebody. But when it's one-on-three or four... Picking up positive yards is really going to be tough for anyone not named Malcolm Perry. So the bottom line is it's going to be a process. Um, the mids have a challenging conference schedule. If they can just get competent enough in the passing department and take care of their red zone issues, they'll have a fighting chance against Houston, Tulsa, and SMU. And I believe that East Carolina, Temple, and Army are all winnable games. So we'll see how the rest of the season plays out. The uh, last thing I wanted to touch on was uh, the status of the American Conference when we heard the news that uh, uh, Central Florida, Houston, and Cincinnati will be leaving for the Big 12. That, just, uh, that news was just broken um, over the weekend, essentially. And I think it will have some pretty big implications. Uh, first and foremost, it knocks the American Conference down to eight teams. So something's got to be done about that. The big question is, who are they going to be bringing in? There's been some talk of Army, but I kind of hope that doesn't happen only because there's a potential for us playing Army twice in a one year in football. And I think that that kind of takes away from some of the whole 
you know, the whole Army Navy tradition, I guess, is what I'm saying. But uh, I, I am no expert on all these conference affiliations, so I'm just going to kind of sit back and, and see what happens. I do know that I hope Navy does not choose to leave the conference because there are a lot of advantages to being in one, not the least of which is the revenue that can be uh, generated from, from bowl appearances and so forth, even if it's not your team. You know, however, you know, the, the conference teams that qualify for the bowl games, there's a way that they split that revenue. I'm not really sure what it is, but uh, all that benefits, uh, you know, Navy athletics. So being in a conference definitely works to their advantage. We just have to figure out the best way to stay competitive. Okay, we're going to take a quick break now. And when we return, I'll talk a little bit about what went down with Coach Jasper and what it could possibly mean for the program down the road. So um, stay with us. All right. Thanks for staying with us, everyone. Carl Darden here with you on Navy Sports Central. Uh, You know, one of the things that can be considered a strength of the Navy football team is the stability of the coaching staff. Uh, Even when Coach Niamatololo had to make all those changes uh, to the defense uh, three years ago, there really wasn't any disruption because those who followed the program closely recognized that for Navy to keep being competitive in the American Conference, uh, those changes needed to happen. But um, after the Air Force game, I think there was a pretty rash decision made out of frustration that did nothing but cause a lot of unnecessary disruption. And I think even though cooler heads prevailed, it could have an effect on the stability of the coaching staff uh, sometime down the road. Now, most of you who've read my blog or listened to the podcast know that I think Chet Gladchuk has done a tremendous job elevating Navy sports across the board. Um, He knows that football is the main revenue producer, and he's looked for different ways to leverage the uh, success of the program and grow the other varsity sports as well. So, uh, and the other thing is, I think that he does a great job finding the right fits when it comes to head coaches. I mean, I'm just thinking of the last three, uh, Joe Amplo, Kerry Collot, and and Tim Taylor. All those guys, I think, are going to do a tremendous job uh, for their respective teams uh, in the future. So that's why I was caught completely off guard when Gladchuk decided to fire Navy Offensive Coordinator Ivan Jasper right after the Air Force game. Uh, it just didn't look like it made a whole lot of sense. Um, Gladchuk has a right to be frustrated. We all are. But uh, this is what I admire about Coach Niamatololo. He went to bat for his guy, and Coach Jasper was reinstated as a quarterback's coach, which was his primary responsibility anyway, along with being the offensive coordinator. And I'm going to get into that in a little bit more detail now. So uh, to do that, I reached out to Mike James, who uh, writes the uh, mid-report for the uh, Rivals Network. He's been dialed into the program a long time, and uh, he was able to give me some pretty good insight here. So this is what he shared. He says, you know, on the, on the Navy staff, the offensive coordinator runs the practices and the meetings. And as far as the game planning goes, it's always been a pretty uh, collaborative effort. Uh, Coach Nimantalolo always had his input, but uh, all the position coaches... Uh, had a hand in coming up with a game plan for uh, the upcoming opponent. So on game day, all the offensive coaches in the booth are assigned a particular position to watch on D. And what they do is communicate to Coach Ken what they see, and he calls a play based on that information. So you know, I get it. The, the game planning probably should be better, especially against Air Force, which is somebody that we see year in and year out and always seems to do a good job against us. But uh, given the fact that you have a bunch of people you know, putting together that plan, I think it's a little unfair to lay it all off on Coach Jasper. And um, I don't know that it makes a whole lot of sense to blame the play calling either, because 
there were a bunch of situations I saw where there was a misread or a lack of patience, and that resulted in either a minimal gain or a loss of yardage. And, and that basically boils down to execution. Remember, we're dealing with talented but young quarterbacks who still need a little bit more seasoning. I don't think there's any mistake about that. And um, the offensive line has a lot of potential, too. I think they're really going to be good. But again, they just need time together. So the biggest thing that they need to improve is pass blocking because the offense will continue to have problems running the ball if there's no passing game to uh, take the pressure off. Uh, I guess my point is taking Coach Jasper out of the equation does nothing to help things. The, The quarterbacks need to develop further, and no one has a better reputation for doing that than he does. So I'm glad Coach Ken was successful in getting Jasper reinstated as a quarterback's coach, but I'm sure he burned up a lot of capital to make that happen, and I wonder how much damage has been done. Uh, as much as I like what Gladchuck has done for Navy sports, I think this could have been handled much better. To me, it would have been far more productive to have him sit down with both coaches and discuss what needed to be done for the good of the program. Then they could put a plan into effect. But there shouldn't be any scenario that doesn't include Coach Jasper working with the quarterbacks. So uh, that's that's basically my take on the whole situation. Um, as far as the rest of the season goes, I told you guys earlier this week that we need to buckle up because the mids do not have an easy schedule by any stretch of the imagination. It's going to be really, really tough for them to break even if the offense can't find a passing game. And uh, I know I keep coming back to that, but uh, there's no other way around it. Okay, enough about that. Let's go ahead and take a quick breather and we'll return with our question of the day. All right. Thanks for hanging in with us, everyone. Uh, It's time for our question of the day. But before we get to it, I wanted to review the responses from uh, the one I put out in our last episode. So here it is. Uh, If you recall, I asked, if I set the number of wins for the Navy football team this year at six and a half, are you taking the over or the under? And I will say that we had a bunch of people get back to us on this one. Um, I said I would read the names of everyone who took part in the poll, and I'll definitely honor that. But uh, I think for future questions, given the high number this time around, if this keeps up, I think I'm just going to go with reading up to five comments that uh, really get my attention. So with that being said, here's everyone who went with the over, and there were a total of, I think, 36 people altogether. So Kevin Hayes, Paul Garazuski, Brian Marin, Brian Butler, Jeremiah McInerney, uh, Kyle Ficanda, Tom Campbell, Megan Scribner, Tom McMenemy, Andrew Hamby, Mike Gibson, Bill Brenner. Uh, I've got Lisa Lisa here. Uh, William Bailey, Tom Mortensen, Kurt McClurg, Lowell Crow, Lee Reinhardt, Chris Warren, uh, Jared Gibbs, John Ownby, Jeff Amarine, and uh, Jeff, I apologize, that could be Amarine. I'm, I just wanted to uh, you know put both pronunciations in there. Uh, Nydia Whiteman, Lee Baker, Michael Davis, Michael Reed, uh, Nick Diorio. Keith Boring, Bill Brown, Michael Clark, Martin Conine, Mike Hagan, James Layton, Steve McKinney, Rennell Bone, and Romeo Reed. So, like I said, I think about 36 people altogether uh, went with the over on that. Uh, near as I could tell, over half of the respondents did vote before the Marshall game, with the rest deciding sometime between uh, that one and the mids uh, game this past Saturday against the Air Force. Next, we have those who went with the under, and those were Paul Barr, Brian Goodrow, Jane Sable, uh, Melanie, who loves her dog, otherwise known as Melanie Doherty, uh, John Cable, Charles Spiker, Chris McPhail, Gary Brandt, Dick Wilcox, Jeff Johnson, Tracy Clark, David Tyler, Jeff Pence, Tom Nicholas, T.D. Smyers, Patrick Gabriel, and James Keneally. 
Um, so I think there's a total of 17 or 18 uh, in that group. Uh, I think we can all agree that the over is going to be super hard. It would mean the mids winning seven of the remaining 10 games. And that includes playing two teams currently ranked in the top 15. Uh, right now, Notre Dame is ranked uh, 12th and Cincinnati is ranked 8th. Look, I'm not saying it can't happen, but realistically, that's going to be a real reach. Uh, I'd love to be wrong, though. So, you know, who knows? Okay, time for this week's question. Uh, this is a simple yes or no. Win or lose, do you think the mids rushing attack will produce more than 300 yards against Houston? Um, just as some background, Navy had 300, over 330 yards against Marshall, but Air Force held them to uh, 36 net yards on the ground, which is about as bad as it gets. So uh, 300 yards would indicate that the rushing attack is getting there. Now, of course, the big question is, do they convert in the red zone? Because that's what's going to be the big difference maker. Uh, in any case, that's what I kind of wanted to focus on instead of just uh, wins and losses right now, because like I said, I think they could be pretty tough to come by at least over the next few games. Okay, we are in the home stretch here, so let's go ahead and push on through to our mid-watch segment. In our episode from a couple of weeks ago, we named the two athletes we'll be focusing on in the fall, and they were Avery Stoll from the volleyball team and Ashwin Briggs from the uh, uh, men's cross-country team. Uh, we heard how the volleyball team finished up their non-conference schedule, and I think they've uh, been really battle-tested as they get ready to start their Patriot League schedule uh, this upcoming weekend. Um, Avery Stoll has been a consistent performer over the first nine matches. Uh, she is second on the team in kills with 76, which puts her three behind team leader Jamie Llewellyn. Stoll is also second uh, on the team in points with 92.5 and, and tied for third in service aces with six. On defense, the senior from Yorba Linda, California, is also one of the keys to the team's success. She ranks third in blocks with 19, and she's also got 30 digs, which is good for second among Navy's uh, hitters. So, as you can see, Stoll is right up there with the team leaders in some pretty critical offensive and defensive categories. Uh, that Patriot League schedule would be tough, and having someone like her out there on the court has uh, got to be pretty reassuring. I, I, you always hear that term glue guy in, in sports these days, and, and that's kind of how I view her. She's definitely one of those players that helps keep a team together. And uh, by the way, when I'm in Annapolis over the Columbus Day weekend, the Mids will be playing two matches at Wesley Brown Fieldhouse, and I plan to be there uh, at both of them. So I'm really looking forward to seeing them in action, and I hope I get some pretty good photos too because I'm bringing my camera. Okay, now what's going on with Ashwin Briggs from the uh, men's cross-country team? Um, as we've talked about, the team is off to a good start, and they won those first two meets, but Briggs did not compete in the first one because, like I had mentioned, Coach Lanzell went with 15 freshmen, and uh, they pretty much ran away from everyone. But in the uh, Navy Twilight meet, uh, I mentioned that the team did sweep the first 10 places and Briggs did finish eighth. He completed the 4.9 mile course in uh, 24 minutes and just under 52 seconds. So we'll call it 2451.95. That works out to be a pretty blistering five minute pace, by the way, which isn't easy to do over a bunch of uh, rolling terrain that includes uh, some pretty decent hills. Now, as the team captain, Briggs will be looking to keep the team focused over the next few weeks as the mids compete in two more invitationals before that big star meet against Army, which uh, takes place on October 15th. All right, that's going to do it for this edition of Navy Sports Central. Thank you all so much for joining us. Now, if you like what you've heard, remember to follow us wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to spread the word to all the other Navy fans out there. And remember, you can respond to our question of the day by going to the Navy Sports Nation group Facebook page. Uh, I'll go ahead and pin it to the top so you won't miss it. 
And just a quick reminder, the views expressed on Navy Sports Central are my own and do not reflect those of the U.S. Naval Academy or Navy Athletics. By the way, the music used on Navy Sports Central podcast comes to you from Audio Jungle. This is a great resource for purchasing the rights to use music from thousands of artists around the world, and those we feature in our podcast will be credited in our show notes. Talk to you soon, everybody. Until next time, this is Carl Darden. Go Navy, beat Army.